I think it's amazing that uh, Bryce's dad left him that spiritual legacy of a father who loved Jesus and modeled that, uh, on a, not just on the weekends, like he said, but on a daily basis. And I'm, I really am so thankful that Bryce and Cindy are modeling that for their children. So they have a whole generation now that is carrying on this, the legacy of, of Bryce's parents. And Cindy also has parents that, that share that spiritual heritage. And so they're passing it on to their children. There are many of us, though, who don't have that. I didn't have it. And I assume some of you here didn't have that. You didn't have a legacy of a father and a mother that basically were uh, living the Christian life on a daily basis and loving Jesus and, and not just in word but in deed showing Christ in their lives daily. And, you know, the, the bottom line is um, my kids have that. <laughs> my kids have seen that in, in their mother and in their father. And I'm, it's not to say I'm bragging. It's not because my kids, I can bring them up here and they can tell you everything that's wrong with me. That's not the issue. The issue is that whatever legacy you may have had, you can change it. You can be the starting point of a spiritual legacy. And many times uh, the mom is the one that does it. But you know what? If the dad is involved in it, it, it's incredible. It's incredible if the dad gets involved in that. So this Father's Day, whether you had a legacy or didn't have a legacy, you can start a legacy with your kids. And you say, well, my kids are older. Well, that's fine. Start. It's a matter of just starting. Do it. Start it. Begin to live your life for Christ and begin to make decisions that are honoring to Him. Lay that stake in the ground and say, this is what I'm going to be. This is who I'm going to be. And, and, and they will take note and they will see it. So I just want to encourage you that wherever you are at, whether you're a dad or, or uh, you've had a spiritual you know, dad that was there for you, that's great. But you can be that dad. And uh, I want to challenge you that whatever legacy you have, you can be the one that leaves a legacy for your kids. You get to choose that. So I hope you'll choose wisely in that, especially on Father's Day. So anyway, moving into the message. The title of the message is What's Wrong With Me? And some of you read that and said, I don't know, Matt, what is wrong with you? No, that's not the point. You're supposed to apply this to yourself. What's wrong with you, not what's wrong with me. Right, that's the first thing. The question I'm asking is, why do we do bad things? Some would say, well, it's because we're, we're in an unhealthy environment. Our environment influences us, and we can't help ourselves. We had bad pa- parents, you know. We had, bad, we had a bad environment. Or you say, well, we had friends around us who corrupted us. We, we just hung out with the wrong group of people, and, that, and they corrupted us. Or, you know, our parents were either absent or overbearing or whatever it is. But there's another answer we want to look at. It's one that we may not like, but it's, I think it's true, and I think if, if, if we can see it play out in, in our lives, in, in our lives of our kids, even when they're younger, we see it. And that is this, that there's something within us. There's something that, that it cor- has corrupted us. There's something that is within us that the first word that we can learn of, a bit of, of rebellion is no. And we learn how to be disobedient much easier than we learn how to be obedient. And, and there's just this pull and there's this, this laziness and, and all of these things. And you say, where does that come from? That's what we want to look at this weekend. So in the series, what we're doing is we're looking at 
uh, really the, the, the statement of faith for the Evangelical Free Church of America, the Free Church. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, you can read through it and it seems very doctrinal and very kind of like whatever. But you know what? It really has real life application. And that's really what we want to focus on, the real life application. So this weekend, we want to look at the, the, condi- the human condition. Uh, what is the human condition? And it's a theological statement that says, uh, uh, well, let me read it to you. This is the, and, and it'll be up on, on the screen. Uh, this is the human condition uh, from the free church. It says this. We believe that God created Adam and Eve in his image, but they sinned, sinned and were tempted by Satan. By the way, if you ever thought, well, if we were in a perfect environment, then we would never sin. They had the perfect environment and they sinned. So there you go. You may say, well, if, if I was there, I wouldn't have done it. I would have gone, yeah, probably you would have. <laughs> That's just my opinion, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not sure if I am. Um, and, and don't go home insulted by that. You know it in your heart anyways. <laughs> in union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued reconciled and renewed. So there's a few things that this statement says, and I want to talk about those, and then we want to dive into the, app, app, the practical application. The first thing is, the, it says, the statement says, and the Bible says that we're created in the image of God. Now that has implications, because it says that every person on this planet, every person on this planet is created in the image of God and deserves to be treated with dignity, respect, and kindness. That's the first thing the statement says, and it's the first thing that the Bible says. The reason we should treat people equally and with dignity and respect, whether they're male or female, whether they're black or white, whatever race, whatever religion, is because they're all created. We are all created in the image of God. Secondly, we are connected somehow spiritually to our parents, Adam and Eve, and to their rebellion against God in the garden. Somehow or another, we are responsible They aren't just representatives who failed and we wouldn't. There's something about that not only are they corrupted, but we are corrupted. And that goes to the third point, that we are born sinners. Uh, We don't pursue God, but instead choose our own to be our own God. We sin because we inherit from our parents a sin nature, but we also sin because we choose to sin. So it's not like. I can't help myself. We get a, we have a free will and we choose really to sin. Now, this is really all you have to do is have a couple of children. And this becomes very apparent. Nobody has to teach them how to do wrong. They get that. I mean, it's like almost like they have a master's degree in how to do wrong and how to disobey. But then when it comes to obedience, it comes to doing things right. Uh, it, it seems like that's like the hardest lesson in the world for, for some children to learn. The third thing is we can only be set free from sin by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, uh, the phrase I like to use, and it's uh, Tim Keller used it, and I love it. He says that, that Jesus came and he lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died. And I think that really just summarizes the gospel. So what we want to do is want to look at uh, a passage in the book of Genesis. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you turn to page 4 in the chair Bible, we're going to look at Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. And then we're going to jump to chapter 3. And we're going to read the first six verses of chapter 3. We're going to look at these verses because they have a lot to say about the human condition. 
that we're, what we're talking about. And then what we're going to do is we're going to unwrap that a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about it. And we're going to see how that is affecting us today in our relationships, in our morality, in, in just about every area of our lives. All right, so, so uh, let me start reading in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord placed, the Lord God placed man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. All right, so let's now jump over to chapter three. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Of course, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the, the garden. The woman replied, the only fruit from the tree uh, in, from the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. That's the only one. God said, you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God. You might want to underline that. Knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and and then the fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it too. Now, it's interesting. Because God only gives one command. You know, sometimes... Your kids, especially when they get to be teenagers, say, rules, rules, rules. You have all these rules for everything. There's only one command. Basically, the only command that God gives them is just don't eat from that tree. Everything else, don't worry about it. That's it. You may eat freely from each of the tree, each tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, or its fruit, because in the day you do it, you will surely die. Now, he never tells them why. I mean, he says, if you eat from it, you'll die. But he doesn't say, here's why. You ever wonder why God doesn't say, you know, don't eat from that tree? Other than you'll die. (laughs) You you think he's saying, well, you know what, that fruit is full of cholesterol. I mean, it's going to junk up your arteries. You just don't want to eat that. Or it's really fat. You know, I mean, you're going to get, it's, there's so much fat in it, it tastes rotten. I mean, you'll just take one bite and you go, ew, you know, yeah, I just want to save you all of that. Now, he merely says, don't eat from that one tree. But he doesn't explain why. Why? I believe that he wants them to obey not out of fear, not out of the consequences, but out of obedience and love. Now, think about that with your children. Do you want them to obey? And by the way, when you tell your children why, or when you tell them no, what's the first thing they ask? Why? Why not? Now, as a parent, sometimes you need to say no to your child. And they will say to you, why not? Why not? And sometimes it's, it's perfectly fine to say, well, because of this or for these reasons and whatever. But I, I think that sometimes parents... Sometimes, when they're not in a capacity to know why, and you really can't explain it to them, when they say why and they demand a reason or an explanation, uh, what are they doing there? They're basically saying, I really don't trust you. I think I'm smarter than you. 
Even sometimes, have you noticed, when you give them an answer, they go, that's not a good enough reason. You're not very smart. I don't think I can trust you. They think they know better than you. Sometimes. Have you ever done this? I've done it. My wife Carol has done it. Sometimes you just say, here's why. Because I'm the dad and I say no. And that's it. That's all you got to need to know. I'm the boss and you're not. Now, they don't generally like that answer. (laughs) And here's the thing. You want your kids to trust you and obey you. You want to do them to do it out of love and respect. You don't want to have to say, uh, if you do, I'm going to whip you. You know, understand what I'm saying in our day and age. I'm just using words here. But the point is, you don't want to hold threats over them. You basically want them to say, I'm going to do it because, you know, I trust you. I'm just a runt little kid and I don't know what I'm doing. And you're here to protect me and I just trust you and I love you and I just, I'm just going to obey. And there's a sin nature that just says, well, that's a stupid concept. Where'd you get that from? All right, so now I'm going to go on, I'm going to go on the old man get out of my yard rant for here for a minute, okay? I want to ask the parents here a serious question. And here's the question. Are you requiring your children to be respectful of you and other adults? Is that a non-negotiable with you? I don't care how old they are. It doesn't matter if they're just this small or when they first talk. Are you demanding, requiring them to be respectful of you and other adults? If not, I just want to say something to you. You are well on your way to raising rebellious sinners. And shame on you if you're doing that, if you're allowing that. You say, well, they, they argue, it's, it's a fight, they throw a fit, you just tantrum. I, listen, been there, done that, five kids, five boys, been there, done that. Tiring, it always comes at the worst time, they always hit you when you're, you're tired, when you're down, all that stuff. I want to read you a passage, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, this is on page 898, 898 of the chair Bible. This is what it says. Again, this is my old man rant. Get out of my yard, but it's backed up by Scripture, so maybe it's not so much that. Here's what Paul says. Here's what the Word of God says. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with the promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you. And you will live a long life on earth. And essentially what that's saying, it's almost like a proverb. It's basically saying, you know what, they've lived longer and they pay the stupid tax. And they're trying to get you so you don't have to pay the stupid tax. The stupid tax is when you were warned not to do something, you go and do it. And you go, oh, that was stupid. Why didn't I listen to that person? You know, the whole book of Proverbs, many times, it was, it was why didn't I listen to my teachers? Now look at my life. I'm a mess and I should have listened to my teachers. That's the stupid tax. Wisdom, basically, the more you grow in wisdom, the less stupid tax you have to pay. And so parents are there to say, we don't want you to pay a dime of stupid tax, so we're going to warn you. But it goes on to say, notice what it says. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So the question I'm asking, especially fathers today, is 
Are you teaching your children to honor and respect you? That's not an option. That's not an option. This is not an option that you say, well, they, they tend to, they have a mouth and I, no, this is not an option. You have a responsibility as a parent to set a boundary. And they can be upset and they can be angry with you and, and all that. And they can throw a fit. You can say, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to throw a fit. But it is not okay to use words that are disrespectful. It is not okay to talk this way to an adult or to me or to your mom. It's not okay. It's not okay to do that. That's not acceptable. And you know what? We have to set that boundaries because here's what I found. What parents tend to do is they tend to go overboard with all these rules and regulations. And it just it just drives kids nuts because they give them way too many rules and regulations about every little thing. It's like they have a little booklet that they have to go to page 968 to find out how to fold their jeans and put them in their drawer or something. And so they get they get. You know, it's too much. And then there's other parents that are just like hands off. It just say, you know what? Do what you want. And a child says, I'm too young to do that. I need boundaries. I need somebody to, to say thus far or no further. And that's you, mom and dad. If you're a single mom or a single dad, that's you. You have to say thus far or no further. You have to put up with the, with the, with the, with the arguments. You have to put up with the, with the tantrums. You have to put up with that and you say, I don't really care, uh, you know, that you don't, I care that you, that you're, you're, you're struggling with it, but, but no matter what you do, I'm not going to change that boundary. So there's my rant, okay? Because what I'm seeing, unfortunately, is I'm seeing a generation of young people that are growing up who are terribly disrespectful. I, I, listen, I've seen it all through our culture. I'm seeing people who are disrespectful of other people, let alone children with the older adults and especially their parents. I cringe when I see a little kid saying terrible things to their mother or father. I cringe when I see that. And when the mother or father basically just kind of smiles and laughs it off. It's not a joke. Here's the, the other thing I want you to see about, Gen- and we're jumping back to Genesis 3 now. The other thing I want you to see about Satan is that he's a liar. And he plays both sides of, the, he plays both sides of sin. He, he first is involved in the temptation. Notice, he says, you know, God's holding back on you. He really doesn't love you. He doesn't, really doesn't care for you. You go ahead because you're going to find out the moment you eat from that tree, you are going to find out that God has been holding out on you. And there are going to be no consequence, virtually no consequences at all. He goes, you certainly will not die. In fact, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be like God. You're going to see just like he does it. And that's what he's afraid of. He's afraid that all of a sudden your eyes are going to be open and you're going to see exactly like God does. Now, so, so that's the temptation side. But then what, I, what happens is once you sin, he immediately steps over and gets to the condemnation side. You call yourself a Christian. Why would you do that? What were you thinking? Why would God bother to love someone like you? He go, wait a minute, weren't you just over here telling me to do this? And that's what he does. But the other thing he does is he mixes some truth with a lot of error. Now, he was right. He says, your eyes will be open, and their eyes were open. And he realized for the first time they were naked. And he realized for the first time 
that they had, we were experiencing shame. And they realized for the first time that now there's a wall between them and God. And they lost so much. They had nakedness. They had fear of God. They had shame. They lost so much and they gained nothing. Now, it's also interesting here that Satan never denies the existence of God. What does he deny? The goodness of God. He's saying, you know, it's not a matter that I don't believe God exists. I believe God exists. And by the way, James says the demons believe in God and they shudder. So when people say, well, I believe in God, well, that's good. So do the demons. So, you know, got, got a little more for me here. Um, so, so Satan doesn't deny the existence of God. What does he deny? The goodness of God. The character of God. You can't trust him. You're on your own. That's, that's actually the big lie. And here's the big lie. I think it'll be up on the screen. Uh, the big lie is this, that the serpent planted into our hearts, the hearts of our parents, and it's a big lie that's planted in our hearts at, from birth, that you can't trust God and you're on your own. You can't trust Him and you're on your own. This is the big lie that has been passed on to every human heart since the fall. We see God is not having our best interests. We need to take our, over our own lives. We need to be our own God. There's a story told about this man, and he took his son to a department store. And uh, it was around Christmas time, and he walked him through the store, and he showed him, like, the train set. And he says, you like that? Yeah. Okay, good, good. Good to know. And he showed him this. He says, do you like this? Yeah, yeah. Love. Showed him a BB gun. you like? Oh, yeah, I love that. Showed him around the store. Spent an hour, hour and a half just walking around. And, and, and the father's just saying, wow, that's beautiful. Um, would you like one of these? Yeah, yeah, I'd like one of those. Wow, wow. And uh, so he goes through the store. And he walks through the store and he points it out. Would you like this? Yeah, I'd love that. And, and so they, they come out and, and, he, and the father says to him, um, <clears throat> they come out and they leave. And he says, well, now that you've seen everything in the store and what it has to offer, I just want you to know, you're not getting anything from that store. And you know what? That's how Satan portrayed God in the garden. You like that? You like that? You like that? You're not getting any of that. That's what Satan was trying to say about God. Satan tells believers that God is like that father in the toy score. This is what the serpent was basically telling Eve in the garden, that God is not good and he's not really looking out for you. He really doesn't love you. You're on your own. That's the big lie. And that lie has been planted in our hearts. We are born with that lie about God. So Adam and Eve sinned. What is sin? Well, it took, you know, the short answer is they took some of the fruit and ate it. But sin is not just a violation of God's law. First John says it is. It's a transgression of law. But the Sermon on the Mount says that sin can even point to the motives of the heart. Sin can even be done without doing anything, any action. Jesus says that, that we can commit sin in our hearts, in our minds. The ultimate sin is this. That Satan says it. You will be like God. You, you will be like God. And this is what we want, to put ourselves in the place of God. 
to make ourselves our own authorities, the authorities of our lives, to live for ourselves, for our glory, to make everything center on us rather than God. And that's why I go back to parents and children. You have to show children that they are not their own kings and queens. They are not their own gods. They have to learn that lesson early. There's a story, uh, and it's a true story, historical. Adolf Eichmann was a principal architect of the Holocaust death camps where millions of Jews were taken by trains and and gassed to death. They did a 60-minute story, uh, Mike Wallace did, and he asked the question at the beginning, how is it possible for a man to act like Eichmann acted? Was he a monster? Was he a madman? And so he asked this question. What kind of person would do this? How, how, how off the wall do you have to be to do something like this? So he began to interview uh, Yehel Denur, and uh, he was a, a Nazi camp super, uh, survivor who testified against Eichmann at the Nuremberg trials. So during the interview, uh, Wallace shows uh, him a clip of him walking into the courtroom and uh, he's going to give testimony to Nuremberg trials against Eichmann and he makes eye contact with Eichmann and he immediately falls down. He begins to weep and he, he just is, becomes a basket case. And he, he ultimately claps. He's a heap on the floor and finally... Uh, the, the court, uh, the judge pounds a gavel to regain order in the crowded uh, courtroom. And so, so, so uh, Mike Wallace has him and he shows him this clip and he says to him, what was going on in your head right then? When you, when you saw Eichmann, what were you thinking? And uh, he says, were you, were you feeling hatred? Were you fearful? Or were you just reliving the, the horrible memories of what took place. And here's what he said. Dinner responded that he expected Eichmann to be a monster. And he said instead. He was just a man. And here's what he here's a quote he said from that interview. He says. I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. I'm I'm just like him. In other words, what he was saying was, I expected to see a monster. I expected to see a sadist. What I saw was an ordinary man, just like me. So Wallace ends his interview, and he basically says, he surmised Deneur's terrible discovery, he says, Eichmann is in all of us. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to say that. But what is the first thing that you hear when somebody goes on a rampage? Somebody goes out and does terrible, horrible things. And they interview the neighbors. And what do they generally say? Oh, yeah, he was strange. I knew he was going to go off any time. He was like a bomb waiting to go. I don't know why. I called the police a number of times about him. I had, no, they never say that. What do they say? It was an ordinary person. I would have never believed it. I never saw it coming. Well, what do we do with this? What do we do with this fallenness that we inherit from our parents? What do we do with this sin nature that every one of our children, no matter how cute they are, 
they have it and they display it very, I mean, if you're a parent, you, you know that what I'm talking about is you say, how did they learn that? They haven't even been with anybody other than us. Well, maybe they learned it from you. But there's another, <laughs> there's another thing. They could have, they could have, the rebellion could have been part of who they are in a sense. Well, what's the cure? What's the cure? Turn back to Genesis chapter 3, verse the, the, the cure for sin, the cure for this human condition that we call original sin. What's the cure? And, and, and it's a tale of two trees. <clears throat> so Genesis 3, verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord. Now, see, they've sinned. They've sinned, right? And so they're hiding. <clears throat> The man and his wife heard the Lord walking uh, about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. The Lord God called the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you. I heard you walking in the garden. So I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. So God comes along looking for Adam and Eve. Here's the first good news of all of the Bible. You say, well, it doesn't seem like good news because they're getting caught in their sin. That doesn't seem like a good thing. The good news is God comes looking for them. God pursues them. Uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis that called God in a, in, a, in, a, in a positive, powerful way, the hound of heaven, that he comes looking for us. He calls out to Adam. He says, where are you? Now, why does he say that? Doesn't God know where he is? Yeah, he knows. He's hiding right behind that bush over there. He knows exactly where he is. Why does he do this? Because he's trying to get Adam to take responsibility for his sin. He's trying to get him to acknowledge his sin. God knows where he is. He's getting Adam to own his sin. And and here's the principle for us. Until we take ownership for our sin, for our behavior, for our words, for our actions, there can be no healing. If you try to conceal it, First John says, if we, if we say that we have no sin, there's no forgiveness. But if we're willing to acknowledge it, admit it, take ownership for it, there is forgiveness. So the first, the principle is, until we take ownership for our sin, there can be no healing. And then he asks him, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree? Now, how should Adam have responded? Yeah, I ate from the tree. Totally disobeyed. Completely my fault. I should have not done it. But what does he do? He does exactly what we do. He does exactly what your kids do. When they're in the middle and they're caught with their hand in the cookie jar, doing something they shouldn't be doing, what do they do if there's two or three of them? It's not their fault, it's his fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. And that's exactly what Adam does. He tries to shift the blame. We are blame shifters. Adam blames Eve. She gave me this fruit and I ate it. And she, she blames, she blames, you know what she does? She blames the environment. It's this place you put us in. This dumb snake. Why did you put him in here? I mean, we had a great environment until he showed up. I would have never done this had it not been for the snake. Adam says, well, I wouldn't have done it if it hadn't been for the woman, right? 
As long as we blame other people or the environment for our sinful behavior, we will not find forgiveness and freedom. That's the principle of Genesis 3. But God has an ultimate solution for our sin problem. Jump down to verse 15 of chapter 3. So he, he basically puts a curse on the man, a curse on the woman, and a curse on the snake. And he says this, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, what he's saying here is very important. He's saying that the, 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 the descendant or one of those who are under the power of the snake, the power of the evil one, the fallen angels, basically the, the enemy will have some kind of adversarial relationship to a descendant of Eve, to a descendant of the woman. And this enemy, Satan, is going to harm or hurt her descendant. But Eve's descendant is going to strike the death blow on the serpent. That's essentially what Genesis 3.15. There's going to be hostility. He will strike your head, that's a death blow, and you will strike his heel. That's not a death blow. So the descendant of Jesus, essentially, and you can read through this in Scripture, will reverse the work of the serpent and restore paradise. Because what's going to happen next? The next thing that's going to happen is God is going to exit them out of the garden and say, you're done, you're out of here. And he puts angels with flaming swords to, to, to protect the garden so they can't get to the tree of life So they're going to die because they needed the tree of life to live. Here's the point. The serpent put a lie in our hearts through the tree. Jesus takes the lie out of our hearts through a tree, through the cross. The first Adam in the Garden of Eden was told by God, obey me about the tree and you will live. And he didn't do it. The second Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane was told by God, Obey me about the tree, go to the cross, and I'm going to crush you into dust, but it's the only way to end the hiding. It's the only way to end the shame. It's the only way to take the punishment for their guilt. And he did it willingly. There's a poem written by George Herbert. It goes like this. One of the stanzas, it says, All ye who pass by... Speaking of the cross, all ye who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me. See, Adam stole the fruit. And what he's saying here is, I'm climbing this tree. Because the cross became a tree of death for Jesus Christ. That same cross has become the tree of life for you and for me. See, only the truth of the gospel will root out the big lie of the enemy. What was the big lie of the enemy? God doesn't have your best interest. He really doesn't love you. He really doesn't care. You're on your own. Only the truth of the gospel will convince you and convince your rebellious heart that he's not withholding from us. Only when we look at the cross do we see he's given us everything. He's withheld nothing. The lie of the serpent, the lie the serpent has planted in our hearts is that you're on your own and God doesn't love you. He doesn't care. The cross says 
Jesus loved you enough to give his very life for you. He entered into our suffering. He entered into our world. He was abused. He was executed like a criminal on a cross. And he willingly gave his life. And if, you, if your heart needs to hear more than that about his love, I don't know what to tell you. Sin entered the world. The cross or the tree provided the, the answer to our sin. The answer to the big lie that we believe. That he really doesn't love you. But when we look to the cross, we say, how can I say he doesn't love me when I look to the cross? And I see that he willingly gave his life for me. That will break the lie. That will remind us that we are loved. That's the only thing that will break the curse. His life, his death, and his resurrection for us. Stand with me. Let's pray. So, Father, the liar is still involved in our world. And he has many troops, so to speak. He plays both sides of the fence. He's there in temptation and he's there in condemnation. And the lie has been planted deeper than our hearts. That we don't trust God. We don't believe he has our best interests. We don't believe he really loves us. And that's a lie from the enemy. But it's been planted deep. Help us to look to the cross, Father, and see that just as sin entered through a tree, sin was dealt with on a tree. That Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross. He took, the, took our punishment, took our pain, took our suffering, paid the price for us, loved us enough that he would do that for us. Thank you. Thank you for the cross. It breaks the power of the lie in my heart and in our hearts. May we reflect on the cross and never forget that he does indeed love us. He does indeed care. And we are not on our own. And as we give our lives to him, we truly find freedom. Thank you for the gospel, Father, that at the same time tells us That we are lost sinners, but we are loved sons and daughters. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.